Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 13, Before His First Flight. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So this is the podcast where we bring in the experts, like NASA scientists, engineers, sometimes even astronauts, and they all tell you the coolest things going on here at NASA. So today we're talking with Mark Vandehei. He's a U.S. astronaut here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, and he just launched to the International Space Station on September 12, 2017, to go to space for the very first time. We had a great discussion about his expectations for flying to space and some of the work and his training that he had to go through to get ready for his voyage to the station. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Mark Vandehei. Enjoy. All right, well, thanks for coming today, Mark. I know you're very busy, um, especially coming so close to your launch date. So um, that's September again, right? It is September 13th. It is September. Okay, so that's with um, now it's kind of changed up a bit, right? So now we're talking, you're launching with Alexander and Joe, right? That's Joe. correct. Alexander Mizurkin and Joe Acaba. Um, so, I mean, this is your very first cl- flight coming up soon. So you've been busy training for, for years. I mean, uh, you were selected in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm, right? That's so that's a, <laughs> there's a lot of training to be had. So, I mean, let's talk about some of those things. What, like, what, were your, what are your expectations and what are you preparing for, really? I mean, what does an astronaut need to know before they launch? So the primary thing we need to know is how to, uh, I would say, the primary thing we need to know is how to follow instructions because we really are serving as the eyes and hands of a lot of other people that aren't there with us but are able to to support us. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the primary thing. (laughs) Um, You also need to know how to work well with the the other people that you're living with. That's right. um, Make sure you, you take care of each other so everyone's fully functional. And then after that, I would say we have to have all the technical skills to do our job that are operate the science experiments and be able to keep the, the space station actually running. Nice. Now, I mean, so we talked a little bit on a previous episode with Randy Bresnik about some of the things you have to learn, but just like a, a, an overview of some of the things, like uh, in terms of knowing what to do on the station, mm-hmm. you're talking all the different systems, right? So, um, um, Comrade described more, uh, you know, fixing the toilet and yeah, yeah. and you know also you know learning how to do an EVA and and everything in between. Yeah. So um, is that is that kind of what you've been doing over Absolutely. the past? Absolutely, I've yeah. got uh, com- uh, Comrade's going to be the commander, so there's some certainly some additional things he's had to learn. Okay, um, but by and large, the crew members on the space station, when there's not an emergency taking place, uh, we're all kind of equal. Um, Mm-hmm. Certainly, the commander, when an emergency is happening, he's that's the person that's making the, those tough calls and and pulling the team together, mm-hmm. and uh, and he'll also coordinate on behalf of the entire team. But crew members on the station are generalists. We have to uh, we have to have a skill set that'll allow us to uh, do whatever the ground needs us to do, and that does involve EVA training, of course. Mm-hmm. That involves uh, robotics training. Uh, that involves uh, medical training too, just in case something comes up where we have to take care of each other. 
That's been pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, did Comrade talk at all about that? About the which which part? The medical training. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just a, I mean just a tiny little bit. Mm-hmm. We actually only had about twenty five minutes to talk. Okay. So he he talked. I mean mostly a little bit. He said, I mean you have to you have to know kind of the basics of, of medical training in case of there's an emergency, emergency situation. But he also mentioned that you have, you, you can call down doctors and they can Absolutely. walk you through some of those things. And I guess that kind of helps, right? Because especially not being a doctor and you guys, one thing I said last time was, you know, you have to be a jack of all trades and a master of all in, in sort of a, in, in a way, I guess you have to really know the systems in a way, but the, the ground is always there to help out. That's true. For example, uh, we had a, uh, an event that involved us um, simulating that one of the crew members um, needed CPR. Mm-hmm. And it had been six months at least, maybe even a year since my previous training on that. And the uh, instructors did a good job of saying, okay, go for it. So I knew I should do <laughs> chest compressions. I knew I should give, uh, give uh, br- do breaths periodically. Right, but right. I wasn't 100% certain of what number of breaths, what number of repetitions. Right. Um, so I just started. <laughs> and then uh, they reminded me as part of the train that, hey, look, when you had that uncertainty, you did a good job getting started, but the ground's there to help answer that question. You could have said, hey, we need this, this conference right now, and let's get a doctor talking to us and make sure we're doing the right things. So mm-hmm. um, because you have to know so much, Sometimes the details, uh, the ground can really help you out with that. Yeah, and, and they're there 24-7, right? Absolutely. So, you, so you, can, you can call down and say, hey, something's going on, I need yes. help. Yes. And I, I, you guys walk through all of those different things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, on top of just training for some of the things on the International Space Station that you're going to be doing, and, and you know, in, especially emergency situations, you go through other types of training too, right? Don't you do survival training and things yeah. like that? Absolutely. We have... Uh, First of all, there's land survival training. One of the first things you do as astronaut candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe the next class is going to do that at Fort Rucker. It's an Army base. Okay. Um, then there's uh, land survival training. Uh, no, I already talked about that. There's land survival training that we do as astronaut candidates. And right. then the next survival training you do is actually after you're assigned to a Soyuz crew. There's winter survival training in case your Soyuz lands someplace where the search and rescue forces can't get to you as quickly as you'd like, oh. and you may have to, you know, be someplace in the in the winter in Russia <laughs> and have to be able to survive for a couple days. Oh wow! Worst case. Right, right. So we do that training. That's also a very good time for the crew to bond with each other, as yeah. you can imagine. <laughs> There's also uh, nominally the Soyuz lands on land. Right. Uh, but we also have water survival training. Okay, it's just in case it does. Just, land on just water. in case. Well, if there's a really urgent need to descend, right, then we're not going to worry about where on the Earth we hit. Right. Possibly, if it's that. Normally, we're, we're very. A we, lot of bad things have to happen in a row yes, to get to that. Yes, we really want to <laughs> land in specific places, but just in case there's the option, and much of the Earth is covered with water, so right. we learn how to uh, deal with that situation as well. So you did do the um, the winter survival training, right? You had to go through that. What do you have any good stories of? Uh, you know, you said it was a good time to to bond with your with your crewmates. So are there any good stories? Sure. From yeah. This? <laughs> I uh, so the training consists of staying out for us. We stayed out for two nights. Mm-hmm. The first night. Uh, you egress the Soyuz capsule that they put out in the forest. Uh, we've got a, a really good set of cold weather gear that we put on. Mm-hmm. And so we put, we put all that stuff on. And then we uh, use the seat liners 
that are molded to us, those that are in the, in the I would call it kind of like a bucket on, inside the Soyuz, oh. we could take those out and use those as sleds. So we, we put oh. a bunch of gear on that and uh, oh, use I those see. And drag those through to a place to find a place to set up a camp. Cool. Of course, the parachute that the Soyuz lands with is, a, is huge. So that's a, a massive resource of cloth. Mm. So the first night, what we did is had to set up a lean-to and uh, used, used both timber that we found in the area and uh, strings from the parachute and the actual sh cloth from the parachute, as well as a lot of branches to set up a shelter. But that was really, that night was all about the fire because oh. the lean-to just kept us from losing all the heat. But we were kind of sleeping, there was two people kind of sleeping on top of each other just about. So, a lean, oh, sorry, a lean-to is like, is, is that a shelter that, I mean, I'm assuming, leans up against something? Is that what that is? Uh, a lean -to, imagine uh, if you had a plane that was uh, like a half of a roof. Okay. Um, and all it is, is is one wall that goes from maybe about waist high down to the ground. Oh. With enough space underneath it, so that two people could could be sleeping underneath it, um, with the length of their bodies um, facing out to the open. I see. Okay. And what we do with that is we light a fire on the on the open side, so that they get a lot of warmth. And the the fact that you have that backdrop helps reflect some of that heat down towards you. Nice, but you doesn't trap any of the smoke or anything like that. Ideally, I no. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want. <laughs> Um, so, but that's why I said it's all about the fire. If the fire right. goes out, that lean-to is really worthless. Right. Um, so one person's awake and constantly cutting wood because to keep the fire going, it's amazing how much wood you need in, in that environment. So <laughs> wow. we did that. Um, my, my two Russians that I – initially I was going to launch with two Russians, so mm -hmm. I did that with two Russians. They had both done this before. Uh, they were really, really good with uh, the material we had. Nice. And we're smart enough, they knew that the next day we'd have to set up a teepee. So our lean-to kind of had a few pieces that we could use for the teepee ready to go. So we just had to change the lean-to and it, we kind of turned it into a teepee on the next, on the next day. So oh. the teepee was great. Um, we, uh, it's much more comfortable, uh, much smaller fire inside the teepee. Um, oh, okay. So you, you had to make the teepee on the second day because it's, I guess it's more intensive to build? Is that why? Or? It, it takes longer to build. I see. But it's also a much better shelter. Okay. So it's the type of thing that, uh, quite honestly, I think all of us would have preferred to go right to the teepee <laughs> because uh, I'm not 100% certain it really is takes longer to build, but the Russians want us to have the experience building both types and to I understand see. what it took to... Uh, to live in both of them. Okay, okay. You that need a lot less lumber to keep the teepee warm. Uh, but again, we were both, we were experienced in both situations. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then I guess, you know, uh, you have survival, survival training. What other kinds of things do you, do you go through? Well, one of the uh, big deals for astronauts that work at, at NASA is we come from a lot of different backgrounds. Okay. From uh, microbiologists to um, Navy SEALs. So we've got to be able to have a, uh, a culture where all those people can come together and operate in a, operate uh, highly technical machines in an environment where if you mess it up, you could die. Right. So another thing that's really very, very interesting uh, is we use T-38s. It's, a, it's a, the same type of aircraft that the Air Force uses to train pilots. So okay. we use those. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about that is, much like 
we can't fly people in space very often, mm -hmm. but we can put people in, in these jets very often. And it, um, you have to, the jet moves really, really fast. <laughs> so you have to be able to think fast. You've also got to coordinate with the ground. And um, they will direct you what to do. And at times you have to make decisions that, that uh, require you to say, hey, like, I get what you just said, but we really need to do this because we're in a, in a, in a tough situation, for example. Okay. Um, and you have to coordinate with the other crew member because it's, it's, yeah, it's a two-cockpit aircraft. There's, there's a, a pilot, and uh, typically we call them a backseater. You work as the navigator or communicate, and communicator in a uh, nominal situation. And was that your job? Well, because I'm not a military pilot, yes. Okay. So the, all of the front seaters are military pilots <laughs> if they're astronauts, uh, and they are um, instructor pilots typically from the military as well if they're not astronauts. Um, and that's, you know, it's a, it's a great deal to have to go fly around in a jet as part of your job. Right. Did, did you end up flying with a fellow astronaut, or did you fly with one of the pilots that they, they had, I guess? Initially, you fly with instructors. Okay. But by and large, almost every flight is with the uh, uh, another astronaut pilot. I see. Did any of them mess with you at any time or, or try to make you throw up or anything? Like um, that? No. <laughs> so one time, though... Uh, <laughs> uh, so one of the things they always tell because they're very experienced and we're not it's really easy to just assume that they know how to do everything they can fly that jet completely by themselves awesome. so it can be a little intimidating when you get in the back seat you know the front the front seater can do everything by themselves mm -hmm. but they really want you to be engaged and recognize that if they do something stupid that would kill them it's going to kill both of us right you're, you're a nanosecond behind them <laughs> um, and we train, and the, the, the astronaut pilots allow us to do everything. They'll allow us to fly the jet, do the communications, do the navigation, just to get good at that. Because, there's, a, for example, if something happened to the pilot, you might have to do that. Right. And it's, it's more fun for us. And they, actually, a lot of the astronaut pilots have experience as being instructor pilots. So mm -hmm. they're good at that. Well, one time, uh, <laughs> uh, Barry Wilmore was trying to make sure I was paying attention. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to be climbing to a specific altitude. Mm -hmm. And just maybe about 500 feet before I, I needed to start leveling off, he said, so where do you go to church? And I stopped paying attention to what was going on in the jet. And then I, I started talking to him. And then he did that on purpose so that he uh. said I recognized I needed to prioritize what I was doing in the jet more. And so then he waited till I was really flying straight through the altitude I was supposed to assign, be, be uh, leveling off at and said, check your altitude. <laughs> and then I did. Another time, uh, uh, same. We're not as a backseater. I'm not allowed to fly within 200 feet of the ground, but you can fly towards a, an airport, get to 200 feet, and then act like you like there's a problem on the runway, and then basically um, add power to the jet and go through the takeoff process. I see. Well, earlier on in my in my training, I was flying with uh, another guy. And he did a really good job of letting me mess up as much as possible before he'd correct me so that I would learn. <laughs> Same type of thing. I gave it a lot of power. I started climbing. Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't – I wasn't experienced enough to recognize that right after I started climbing, I needed to reduce the power. Oh. So I was really, really speeding up. And I only had to climb up to 3,000 feet, which you do really fast in that jet if you haven't taken the power out. Whoa. And so uh, – same thing, I got to 3,000 feet. I was climbing really, really fast. He said, check your altitude. <sighs> and my immediate response wasn't to take out the power. It was just to pitch the nose forward, Ooh. which meant that anything that I had loose in the jet just hit the ceiling because <laughs> I just went down so fast all of a sudden. So, 
good, really good training. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't forget that lesson. Yeah. <laughs> it's good that you guys are always um, keeping each other in check. I'm sure that all your astronaut, um, your fellow astronauts are constantly doing this, right? They're giving you advice and, and anything like that. Absolutely. Now, now, you being a first-time flyer, I'm sure they've they've given you some of those experiences, especially some of your classmates, right? Like, mm -hmm. so so who, we have uh, Reed Wiseman mm -hmm. and um, Mike, to Hopkins. Mike Hopkins. Chell all, Lindgren. Chell. They, all these guys have, have flown Kate before. Rubens. Yeah, that's right. Kate, most recently. So... Um, you know, have these guys given you some some advice? Come to you and say, "Hey, this you know, any kind of things that you have to be watching out for." Absolutely, and yeah. not just them. I, all of them. All right. Everything from uh, if you're having a bad day, don't <laughs> talk to it on the ra don't talk to people about it on the radio. Um, <laughs> to uh, expectations on how to how to uh, as you're getting ready for pre the launch and your families in in Kazakhstan, getting ready mm -hmm. for that. What to expect out of that. Um, any good nuggets that they've told you? Chris Cassidy told me that one of the things to do when you're doing a procedure is is to make sure you're, there's notes blocks in a lot of the procedures. Mm -hmm. And he said the notes blocks aren't required for us to read. Hmm. But you really need to read those because they typically give you the big picture. Hmm. And so when you read those carefully, then as you're doing the steps, it'll prevent you from doing those steps blindly, which helps you be a little more accurate in how you're doing the procedure. So if, if you know why you're doing this particular thing, then it's a lot easier to recognize when you're pressing the wrong, about to press the wrong button because it doesn't make any sense. I see. Maybe you misread that step later on. Okay, so like all the little details. There's a, sure. oh, there, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, is there, is there anything that you, that any any astronaut has given you so far just to always always keep this in mind. I guess the notes is, is one of them, but mm -hmm. especially maybe maybe Soyuz Ascent or something, you know, maybe <laughs> lean back. I remember uh, what was I was talking with uh, Shane Kimbrough just recently and um, they said once he once he gets to a certain point, you got to make sure you strap down. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise you're going to go flying up or something like that. Any kind of pieces of advice like that? Well, it doesn't even have to be operational. It could be you're going to the bathroom and you have to make sure that you turn the fan on first or, you know, one of those things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you go through all of those things. Keep track of your stuff. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that we're very comfortable with on Earth is when you put something down, it's down. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think of, of uh, leaving things on a two-dimensional surface and it's staying there. Yeah. But you have an extra dimension in space and you have to put a little extra effort into remembering like another dimension that it could be someplace else too. That's right. So uh, that can be challenging for people is just really slowing yourself down enough to look at where you put something and uh, visualize what's around it because you could come back to the same place and if you weren't very deliberate about looking at that place from a from an orientation that you always take, you might come in there upside down and then be like, wow, I remember putting it somewhere in here, but nothing looks, I can't picture it in this spot. Yeah. So things like that. I remember talking to um, Mike Hopkins a couple, well, probably more than a couple months ago, but he, um, one thing that always stuck with me was he was talking about, he was working on this rack, I guess, and he had to pull it back and get to, get behind it, and just the way that he was doing it, he just, it was hard to reach. And I, I don't know if he's told you the same story, but it was hard to reach. And he calls to the ground, tells them his problem. And he's like, and they're like, we'll flip upside down. <laughs> and he's like, 
oh yeah, I can do that. <laughs> and it's just, you know, I guess you're, you know, you're trading on the ground, but you know, you do have the limitations of gravity on the ground, even though you have all these, these mock-ups, but he, flipping upside down was, it solved the problem immediately. He got a whole new vantage point, but you can't, you can't practice flipping up on, in, you know, 1G on the you earth can, or anything. Yeah, like definitely can't. <laughs> oh, so, um, you know, an, an astronaut class just actually recently got selected. Um, does this bring back any kind of any memories of when when you got selected as an astronaut back in two thousand nine? Uh, yes, definitely. I I've seen a lot of those astronaut hopefuls that have been either in the gym or yeah, um, getting you know going to their interviews or whatever, and uh, that's an that is an emotional roller coaster. Cause, <laughs> uh, I don't envy them at all. Because you went through it, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. it's. Uh, I think I did a pretty good job of assuming there was no hope that I would get the job, and that made it a lot less stressful. In fact, the only times I got kind of like, whoa, be careful, was when I thought I just did something really, really successful, and maybe there's a chance I get this job. And I thought, no, no, don't do that to yourself. Because <laughs> that's when you get you make yourself all nervous, right? That's I when guess. you, you, yeah, you know, yeah, if you yeah. have nothing to lose, then, you know, <laughs> no big deal. And right. this is, I just would have, if, if, if I didn't get the job, I would have had, still had a really cool experience getting the first-hand um, experience of what the astronaut selection process is like, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, w- what is it like, right? I mean, you say, you say it's stressful and there's things, but w- what are they doing throughout this interview process, you know? Well, I, I would say it's, it's it, I'm certain that the process that the, this class that really hasn't been selected yet but is in the process of finishing being selected. Uh-huh. I'm sure their pro- I know their process has changed mm-hmm. since we went through. But uh, there's psychological examinations oh, wow. that we did. Yeah. There was uh, group problem-solving exercises that we did. There was a lot of medical exams, especially by the second interview. <laughs> a lot of that is uh, checking to make sure that uh, you don't have any medical issues. All right. Um, there are, uh, of course, there's an interview. Each time you come to visit NASA, the first time and the second time, there's an hour-long interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, there... So it's two times that you come. You come. Well, the first time for my for my class, the first okay. time they interviewed people, they invited 120 people to come. Okay. And then of that 120, they they pared it down to 40 or 50 for a second interview. Wow. And because the medical exams, you can imagine, are so expensive, they only give the medical exams mostly to that smaller group. Of people. Makes sense. Uh, I can. I mean, honestly, like you know, for, to be an astronaut, not only do you have to be super smart and be able to get along with your crewmates and everything, but you have to make sure you're in tip-top physical shape and that nothing can possibly go wrong. You were fortunate enough to actually get the call to get. Yes, the, yeah. uh, what, what was that like? Where were you? <laughs> I was actually in the Mission Control Center working as a Capcom that day. Oh. So it was. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure they didn't know where I was. I answered my my cell phone, <laughs> and. Uh, it was tough because I was so excited, but it wasn't a situation where I was allowed to announce it to anybody. Right. So I'm sitting around a whole bunch of other people that I'm working with, and I just wanted to cheer. <laughs> but I just, and I had to, but I was still working on console. I had to be listening for the crew to call, and I had to be listening to what the ground was talking about. Yeah. So I had to just act like it didn't happen <laughs> and just get back to work. So in that situation, from what I understand, you're, you're only allowed to tell very few people like your, your I told wife, my wife and your parents yep. and that's pretty much it yeah I think I sent my wife an email told her what had happened okay and then only about three hours later did I be did I sent her another email that said oh and don't tell anybody else 
So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just say that wasn't quite as successful as uh, as I should have made it. <laughs> oh man, that had to be. I can't even imagine just getting that call. I would. Uh, I was. I was. Yeah, I was pretty excited. Yeah. Let's let's go back to some of the other training. You know, so we have. Uh, we talked about a little. Uh, just training for on orbit survival training um how about i guess soyuz training now you Mm -hmm. said that uh now you know they switched the crews around and now you have to learn a lot more now you have to you have to be in the in kind of not the hot seat but i guess one of the hot seats is that how it works yes as when i initially started training i was in the right seat okay which has very limited responsibilities um the crew well example jack fisher and fjord your chicken when they launched they didn't Mm -hmm. have anybody in the right seat Right. They don't, you don't need someone to be there. Okay. It, there are some things that are more uncomfortable for... Uh, it's very, very helpful <laughs> to have a right-seater. And I realized mm-hmm. that when I started training as a left-seater, because you need so much more time to train as a left-seater, mm-hmm. you don't always have the right-seater there. And so just having an, a, an additional person who you can say, hey, remind me when... If, if, tell me when five minutes goes by. Or <laughs> um, calculate at what rate the pressure is dropping so we can figure out how much time we have to, to uh, can we wait to to uh, land at our nominal landing spot or do we have to start the landing process immediately mm-hmm. wherever that takes us uh, i'm talking about situations in the simulations in russia where you're I, making it a really bad day in the soyuz right yeah um so when i changed to being a left seater it, it was a it, you're you're really helping to operate the spacecraft and mm-hmm. the training is good but you can imagine the first time you're in there pressing buttons and recognizing that if I mess this up, this is really going to be bad. <laughs> and uh, I've done it so many times now that I'm well past worrying about that. Oh, yeah. But uh, there's a lot that goes on. And it, it's uh, the trainers there do a really good job of making you ready for a, a, a really, really bad day. But even given six malfunctions, um, for example, one of the simulations that I that I don't think I'll ever forget was we were docking with the space station, mm-hmm. and this the automatic systems to dock stopped working. So the commander had to take over and do everything manually. Mm-hmm. And then we got up to the space station. We made contact with the space. I was expecting the simulation to end any any moment, because all we had to do at this point was there's a the way the Soyuz docking mechanism works is there's a probe that sticks out the front, and then once it makes connection with the space station, then the next step is you retract that probe. And that draws the two spacecrafts together. Okay. So we're in that situation. We're connected now mm-hmm. to the space station. But the retraction mechanism didn't work. So oh. we couldn't get that last, uh, that last distance to close the gap with the space station. And so we're going through the troubleshooting for that. It wasn't a, there were, nothing happen, had to happen super fast. Mm-hmm. We had time. So we're kind of going through that procedure. Okay. And then in the midst of that, suddenly simulated smoke started coming from underneath the spacecraft. Fantastic. So here we are. So in the, in the midst of that, we had a fire where we couldn't get to the space station. Uh-huh. We had to do an emergency undocking and then had, so we had, so we had to go through the whole emergency descent process. Wow. And, so, and it was just, to, it was a lot of tons of stuff that had to happen really fast at that point. Wow. Yeah, because I mean, if you're if you're going through this simulation, you think, like you said, this is the last thing. That was yes, and I was mentally kind of on the, like winding down, like okay, yeah, it won't be long now, we'll be done. <laughs> and then we, it was like a whole another simulation started. Wow, oh my gosh, 
the things you guys have to go through is just unreal. <laughs> but it's really kind of cool too. It is, it is. But that's what you have to do, right? So a lot of the a lot of the training is not only kind of understanding the systems and and doing just the day to day stuff, but really, hey, if this scenario happens, this is what you do. If this scenario, like a lot of procedural stuff. And not only that, but uh, it's important that we're doing it as a crew because the styles of each person are different and understanding. <laughs> Um, what the expectations of that Soyuz commander are for me as a left seater versus versus the the, the crewmate he had who had trained for years to do that that role where I was getting another six months to do that role. Yeah. So uh, the teamwork aspect is huge. Right. I mean that's true for um, for some of these things, but also I guess you know EVA training, training in the oh, neutral yes. buoyancy laboratory. So I'm sure you've done that before, right? A lot, yeah. Yeah. So um, what kind? How often have you been in doing that kind of training, and sort of what is it like? Before I got assigned, I did it about an average of seven times a year. Okay. I try, and I think I was kind of pushing to get more opportunities to, to do that. Okay. Um, now that I've been assigned, uh, it's probably been a little less than that. Interesting. Um, but it's always a six hour. It's typically six hours underwater. Right. In the uh, external mobility unit is what we call it, the the spacewalking spacesuit. Mm-hmm. EMU. Mm-hmm. And uh, just in case people aren't aware, the way that works is uh, there's divers that are around us to help balance the suit to make it as good as possible a simulation of weightlessness. Right. It's uh, because of the air volume in the suit and the fact that the suit is actually quite heavy it would be really easy to end up in a situation where your legs are really, really light and your chest is heavy and you, you wouldn't have the strength to flip yourself so that your feet are back underneath you again. Right. So the divers will help try to uh, make it seem a little more like you're out in space. However, uh, the suit is floating. You're not floating inside the suit. So yeah. if you're upside down in the suit, then all the weight of your body might be resting on your shoulders. So it's it can never be a perfect simulation. Yeah, I guess. I mean, from what I've heard is it's it's kind of so you're like like you said, you're underwater in this huge pool that's like 40 feet deep, just enormous, and they have full scale mockups of the ISS underneath, so you can actually kind of feel like what it would be to be on the station and mm-hmm. have kind of the muscle memory to to know okay this is here and this is here and then this handrail's here so you know kind of where to grab on and everything um but from what i understand is you know you're right it's is it's probably as close to simulating what it's like to actually do a spacewalk mm-hmm. as possible but first of all yeah if you're upside down in space that's it you're just upside down but you're still kind of floating in the suit mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas you still have gravity on earth so you're right you, you feel the whole weight but then also you know moving you still have that water resistance right that's true. so that's and and uh so i guess things fly a little bit quicker in space than they would if you were to uh, toss them or, or move your hand or something in in um underwater and i'm sure you've kind of noticed a little bit of that right and maybe the divers are sort of are sort of pushing things a little bit faster so that it simulates it? No, we. Uh, I think sometimes because it's so hard to, for the divers to tell what you're trying to do. Okay, yeah. It, I, they, they, they tend to, like, let you do what you need to do unless they can tell that there's a situation where it's clearly not. Or you might what – I, what, I, what I start doing with the divers is I realize that some things – there's no need for you to fight through just toughing something out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll say um, – well, for example – we have a body restraint tether. Okay. It's kind of like a snake that you can rigidize in a, in a certain shape. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like a third arm. 
you can use it to attach yourself to the space station so you have two hands free and you can do work. Mm -hmm. Or if you have a large, what we call an ORU, an orbital replaceable unit. Okay, it's like that's like a spare part almost. A spare right? part. It could be yeah. very large. It right. could be really tiny. Okay. Um, you can attach that to that body restraint tether and translate along, and it'll just be there. Okay. Well, imagine that that thing wants to float up to the surface of the water or wants right. to sink to the bottom of the pool. The divers will hold on to that, but then you could potentially have this arm sticking off of your hip, and if the diver doesn't realize that you're trying really hard to rotate towards your right shoulder, you're not just trying to rotate yourself. You're suddenly trying to rotate this diver <laughs> with a tank who's holding on to that. Right. So what, what I, when I realize that that becomes an issue sometimes is that I just say, hey, I'm not sure why, but I'm having a hard time rotating towards my right shoulder. And then suddenly it will become very easy to rotate towards my right shoulder. So you don't have direct communications with the divers then? Oh, they, there's underwater speakers. Oh. So everything you're saying, if there's a lot of noise underwater, because when we do scuba stuff sometimes, it is hard to hear. Uh -huh. When you're blowing bubbles out, there's a lot of noise from the bubbles. But uh -huh. if, they, if they stop breathing for a moment, they can hear what you're saying. And we, they're really, really good about keeping track of what we're saying. That's right. Yeah, and they do. I mean, I've, I've spoken with divers in the past, and they do. Um, so you guys do six-hour kind of simulations underwater, and they do two-hour rotations. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit different because um, the astronauts are in the EMU, so you guys have the uh, liquid cooling garment, and you guys are at a pretty good temperature. But for them, two hours is a long time to be in, yeah, a, in, in the pool and the temperatures, and so they do the, that kind of rotational mm -hmm. thing. Um, it's also partly because it's such – they're responsible for our safety, and mm -hmm. it's a very, they've got to be very, very attentive. So they've got to make sure they're super alert. And there are limitations for how long you can dive yeah. on, on those tanks. So. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one of the things I think about with, uh, with being an astronaut and, and preparing to be an astronaut is just how physically able you have to be. You have to, you know, because you're, ta I mean, we're talking about spacesuits. You're, you're, these are very heavy, and being able to spend six hours underwater in a pool, not eating, you know, I'd yeah. be so hungry after six hours. <laughs> uh, but, you know, things like that, you know, what 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 do you do to, to stay healthy and to make sure you're physically at your peak to to make sure you're able to do all of these crazy things? Survive in, in Russia in the winter and stuff like that. So um, I had a boss one time when I first, uh, early in my Army career, that said uh, make physical training the first priority of every day. Hmm. And I think sometimes we don't give ourselves permission to do that. We might feel a little guilty, like it almost seems selfish. Yeah. But because my boss told me that, it really is something that stuck with me. And I really I, I can't afford to always make it the first priority of every day. Mm -hmm. But I've recognized that it really does need to be a priority. And the nice thing about this job is the job gives us opportunities to do that. Mm -hmm. We've got a great facility. Uh, we've got great trainers, um, and we've also got, if, if we injure ourselves, we've got people to help us get rehabilitated as quickly as possible. And you guys, um, the astronauts actually have their own gym here, right, at the Johnson Space Center. It's actually not really called the astronaut gym. It's, it's uh, oh, okay. more designed towards a uh, rehabilitation facility. Oh. So when people come back from space, uh, we need you, they've got to readapt to living in gravity again, right. and that's really the primary function. It mm -hmm. works out that a, a secondary benefit of that is we, we get some really good workout facilities. <laughs> That's right. I remember um, talking with, again, Shane Kimbrough a couple weeks ago, I think, at this point. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. And he had uh, I got the chance to talk with him just two days after he landed. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was already working out. It's crazy. You, I mean, I, he was talking about being dizzy just right after landing, and then, bam, he's up on his feet and, and in the re being re rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. 
Um, so are, are there any other sort of trading aspects that like we need to know based <laughs> the things stuff. that yeah interesting stuff that you go through that uh, just you know a civilian like us uh, don't really get to experience you know I know about the I know about the survival training all the different things that you do to prepare for being on orbit learning all the systems learning how to do EVAs all these different things yeah there's a, another facility that I think is really really neat it's called the Virtual Reality Lab here at Johnson Space Center. Oh. Have you ever been over there? Um, you know, I've seen it. Oh, is that the one where you sit in the chair and they put the goggles over you and mm-hmm. you have the hands? Yes, I've done that. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> There's uh, two, uh, two things that I've really gotten a kick out of lately doing over there. One is the uh, uh, practicing using the safer. So oh, okay. every time we do a spacewalk, we're always tethered to the space station so that um, – and we're locally tethered, so if you let go, you should stay right where, right within hands or each of something. Right. Um, but also another much longer tether, just in case we mess that up, that will keep us safely attached to the space station. But if we mess both of those things up, <laughs> there's also a thing called the Simplified Aid for EVA Rescue. It's called a Safer. Safer. It's, it looks like a backpack that mm-hmm. we wear, which is basically a jetpack. Yeah. But it's got very limited resources, um, mm. and you need to know how to use it. So to practice flying yourself as an independent spacecraft back to the space station requires a little bit of training. <laughs> so what they do in that training is uh, they'll tell you, okay, here's where we're going to start. You can see the space station right there. And, and you're wearing those goggles, so you can look in any direction and you see either stars or the Earth or the space station. Mm-hmm. And then they'll say, okay, uh, we're going to start the simulation. And they will push you off of the space station. Whoa. So the space station will be spinning and you'll be the distance will be increasing between you and the space station. So you're you're sort of tumbling in this simulation, right? Yes, absolutely. Oh, whoa! And and you have to do that because it takes a little bit of time for they they know that it takes some time to deploy the safer and the hand the hand controllers and things like that. Okay. So maybe ten seconds or I can't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll tell you because you're initially you're they, they don't have a mock-up where you have to actually deploy the safer. You start off with holding it in your hands oh. but because they know. It's going to take some time. They don't let you start it right away. Makes sense. Okay. So they say, okay, now you can start it. But the first thing you got to do is call the ground and say, hey, this is EV2. I'm not connected to the space station. I'm heading Nader, and (laughs) I'm deploying the safer. Which oh, you can you, imagine would be a very uncomfortable situation. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a very calm way of saying, "Hey, I'm uh, I'm p- plummeting towards Earth." By the way, <laughs> and, and it's it's a pretty slow speed, <laughs> thankfully, because that's it would true. have to be a speed where you pushed yourself off. Okay. Okay. Um, but the safer is really neat. Uh, once you deploy it, uh, it will stop itself. So you might be spinning, but once you um, once it's it, it's got sensors, mm-hmm. so it'll stop all the rotations. So you'll be fixed in one location. It might be looking away from the space station, but at least you're not rotating anymore. And then we're trained first to yaw to find the space station. Okay. And then we, so we start that yaw, and then once you get to the right stop place, then you press a button, and it'll stop that rotation again. Fancy. So you can basically give it a little bit of an impulse. Don't use up much, much of the resources. Right. You wait, be patient, <laughs> wait for the space station to be lined up, and then you stop it. And then you can adjust your pitch. Okay. Give it just a little bit. Be patient. Wait so you're just lined up. And then you change it from adjusting rotations to adjusting the translations. Okay. So ideally, at that point, you're lined up exactly where you want to go, which mm-hmm. should be exactly where you left from. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just give it a positive X. So you start translating directly towards it just a little bit. 
and if your aim's good, you shouldn't have to make any adjustments, and you have plenty of resources to get back. All right. If you mess up, maybe you forgot how to control it, you can burn <laughs> through half of your stuff, and then you just completely miss the space station. Okay, so it's not like a jetpack how you would imagine in like a sci-fi movie where you're just kind of zooming around. It's stop, press a button, you know, turn, press a button, lean forward or whatever and you it is. don't want to overdo any of the right. things you want to do everything very you want to be very calm about it very methodical yeah yeah and they, they'll do it at a variety of locations uh they'll do it from a uh different velocities of separation okay so that's really good training another yeah. thing do you have any questions about that no well i mean i was the one thing i was going to ask was do you guys have a competition to see how accurate you can go on that first because you said you got to line up and you know the first the hope is that you press the button once and then you go right where do you guys have competitions to see who's the most accurate i haven't i've ever ever walked out of there and said tried to compare how much propellant i had left to somebody else (laughs) (laughs) but maybe you know that might be a good thing to do in the future we'll have like an astronaut olympics yeah that would be fun (laughs) that would be really fun yeah (laughs) or really humbling yeah (laughs) Go through the training and see, you know, do like little things like that. How'd you score? <laughs> I had this much propellant left. Ooh, I had this much. No, but go on. You were going to say something else. Oh, another thing that I thought was really interesting in the virtual reality lab is they, they train you how to do mass handling. Hmm. So you put on those glasses again. Okay. This time, you're, again, you sit in the chair. But they have a, uh, basically handles like we would have for an ORU. Mm-hmm. It could be something that in space or... It has a mass of a thousand kilograms. It could be something that's two hundred kilograms, but they can set up the computer, the the simulation to operate that way, and it's attached to a bunch of strings in each direction. Oh. So you can start it moving, and you'll feel the force once you as you get it moving. You can imagine if it's a thousand, if it's a ton. Right. Once you as you get it moving, it's harder to get it to stop moving, and maybe it's oh. hard to get. It. So things are we call it weightless. But they have a lot of inertia. They have the same amount of inertia as they have on the ground. Mm -hmm. If something weighs a lot, it's going to take more force to get it started moving Mm -hmm. and more force to stop it moving. And it's a really interesting – it's the closest to dealing with weightlessness that I've ever felt because I had a a large object that I needed to line up over some pins. And And then once I got it over the pins, I had to lower it down. The first time I did it, I think as most people would you have a tendency to want to be moving it all the time. So I grab this object. It's, it seems really heavy. I get it to start moving, but I, I kind of keep pushing it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm using my strength to keep it moving. Right. And then I had to use even more strength to get it to stop moving. <sighs> the second time I did it, I realized that once I got it started moving, I could almost I could take my hand because it's already moving. Nothing's going to stop it from moving. Mm-hmm. So once I got it just moving really slowly, I just put my fingertips on those handles, and it kept moving. Oh. And then I just very relaxed and I very calmly waited for it to get to the right spot. And I gave it a very little pressure to stop it, this massive object. Wow. And then I, when I wanted to move it down, I just gave it a little bit of a nudge. I, well, as soon as I knew that it was moving in the right direction, right. I just used my fingertips and let it go. And I suspect when you're in space doing a, doing a spacewalk that because we're in the pool, we're going to have this tendency when we were training as a newbie to want to feel you got to continuously force yourself to keep moving. Right. But once you start getting yourself to move in the right direction, you just have to use fingertip pressure to tend yourself and make sure you're continuing to do the right thing. So that's the nice pairing between doing, you know, simulation runs in the neutral buoyancy laboratory and then going to the virtual reality and doing, you know, you just get a different perspective. Exactly. In the, in the NBL, in the neutral buoyancy lab, yeah. you can move uh, 100 meters. Mm-hmm. In in the virtual reality lab, you can move about a foot. 
you can move something around a foot. So it's really the uh, fine tuning of of things. It's the, it's the little things, and yes. but they're really important, right? Knowing Absolutely. that you know if you try to tug this big massive object really really fast, it's going to be really hard to stop. Yes, those are you know little things, but also extremely important. All right, well, Mark, thanks for taking the time to actually sit down and talk through some of the uh, astronaut training and what it was like to <laughs> be selected as an astronaut, all of the above. Uh, I know you're very busy, so I know this is a, a big chunk of time for you, so that was awesome. Uh, but for the listeners, if you want to know more and, and follow Mark's journey once he goes to the International Space Station, stay tuned till after uh, the music closing credits that we have here, and we'll tell you exactly where you need to go. So thanks again, Mark, for coming on the show. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Mark Van de Heide. He's going to be launching to the International Space Station uh, later this year, or maybe right now, depending on when this podcast gets uh, posted. Uh, but Mark is on social media. He's on Twitter at Astro underscore Sabo. That's S-A-B-O-T. And you can follow his journey uh, aboard the International Space Station as he talks about his day-to-day life and maybe takes some photos uh, from that vantage point 250 miles above the Earth. You can also see his journey uh, at nasa.gov slash ISS. We have updates all the time on what's going on aboard the International Space Station, some of the uh, research studies and and experiments that Mark will be taking uh, part of while he aboard. On social media, we're very active. Uh, Just go to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. On Facebook, it's International Space Station. On Twitter, it's at space underscore station. And on Instagram, it's at ISS. Uh, We'll be following Mark throughout his journey and posting pictures of him and some of the things that he's doing while on that orbiting complex. You can also use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms uh, and submit an idea for the podcast, maybe ask any questions, and we'll make sure to answer it in a later podcast. Uh, This podcast was recorded on May the 4th. That's right. We recorded two podcasts on May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. Super late. I'm still going to say it. And uh, (laughs) special thanks to John Stoll, Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, and John Streeter for making this podcast happen. And uh, thanks again to Mr. Mark Van Hy for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.